You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Chris Bennett. He's the founder of Technology Innovation Law. Just a moment, Chris will be with us and tell us all about what he is up to. But remember that you can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and social media where we post our upcoming shows as well as shows that we have already pre-recorded and created. In just a moment, Chris will be with us. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw This is Carol Murphy. I'm your host for Heartstock Radio. Today, our guest is Chris Bennett. He's the founder of Technology Innovation Law. Hi, Chris, and thanks so much for being on Heartstock. Hi, Carol. How are you? It's an honor and a pleasure and a privilege. And I'll apologize if there's a little background noise since uh, we happen to live near a police station. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were just talking about our experiences. Um, Speaking of which, there we go. Right on cue. That, that was excellent, Chris. <laughs> you couldn't have done that any better. Um, so here we are. In, I'm, I'm speaking, as usual, from Montana. Next week, I'll be recording from California. I'll be there briefly. But um, where, are you, where are you speaking with us from, Chris? I'm speaking from Washington, D.C. Can you give our listeners just a little intro here of what you do as the founder of Technology Innovation Law? And um, yeah, just a, a brief intro so our, our listeners know what it is that, uh, that you're doing there in D.C. Well, Carol, first of all, let me just say thank you for that. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to share with you and your audience uh, uh, for Technology Innovation of Law, which I will, I will uh, help everyone. Uh, we use the trademark T-I-L, and the short story on that is my daughter told me that Technology Innovation of Law was way too long. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so we call it TIL or T-I-L, and our mission is to democratize intellectual property rights for marginalized and underrepresented people and organizations. Uh, and the goal is to make it easier, less costly for them to, to protect their innovation. So uh, what we're about is connecting with people who might be financially disadvantaged, uh, people of color, women, uh, people in rural areas. And we want to help them use their fundamental ability to think to, to make their situation better by creating intellectual property rights. And, one of the cool parts of that is it goes back to the United States Constitution in Article 1, Section 8, which has language that was put in to allow people to, to use their ability to create, to, to make their life better. So that's, uh, that's the essence of what our team is trying to do. Yes, and I, I really appreciate you kind of bringing this to the forefront because it can be profoundly impactful for entrepreneurs. And uh, before we delve into that more deeply, tell us a little bit about what led you to do this work. And um, you, you went to law school in D.C., right? I, I did. And uh, 
I'll, I'll directly respond to that. Then I'll, I'll try to be as concise as I can and sharing a little bit about my journey. Uh, I went to um, Georgetown University Law School in the evening, uh, and I worked for a large telecom company during the day. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons I moved to D.C. I moved here from, uh, at the time I was living in Miami, Florida. And one way to describe how I arrived at this point is, uh, and I'm, by the way, as a caveat, I'm really into music. So oftentimes I'll use songs and song titles as kind of a reference point. Uh, so I would say if you're a fan of the chicks who are from with the Dixie Chicks, they have a song called Taking the Long Way Home. I got here through a pretty long and circuitous route. Um, born in Charlotte, North Carolina, so I'm a, I'm a shameless Southerner. Uh, and uh, some pretty humble circumstances. I lived in probably one of the less uh, economically developed areas of the city called Double Oaks. And uh, just so happened that uh, I was sitting on the front porch and uh, reading a dictionary, which I did in the, when I was eight years old for fun. And uh, a traveling salesperson who happened to be a white gentleman came into our black neighborhood and he saw me, walked up to our door, knocked on the door. And my mom saw the gentleman. It was a hot day, invited him in. And she bought some Encyclopedia Botanicas. And that opened up a world for me because until then, no one in our family had been to college. It wasn't a world that was open to us. And so my route has gone from Charlotte to uh, undergrad in Kentucky, back to Charlotte and then down to Atlanta, Georgia, to Miami, Florida, to management consulting, uh, graduate school in Philadelphia, and a number of other activities, which led me to move to D.C. to go to law school at night because that was a part of my vision and plan. And then uh, ultimately being where I am right now trying to get TIL off the ground to make the world a better place. And a, a lot of stops in between, but kind of taking the long way home, as the, as the chicks would say. <laughs> and I would imagine, you know, there's a whole lifetime of experience that has contributed to where you are now. And I'm hoping, you know, um, I, I did get a little intro into this story of yours um, in a call that I joined that you organized. So I have to say that I, I already know the answer to this question, but it's, it is fascinating to me that there was an experience, it sounded like, early on in life with a family member that really brought this whole cause to the forefront for you. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about, you know, why this is important and maybe some of the impact it, it may have had directly on, on you and some of your family members in the past. Uh, certainly, Caroline, I appreciate that, that segue. The direct response is I happen to have an uncle, my uncle Wiley Bennett, who was, uh, he was one of 13 kids born to uh, two farmer parents in Chesterfield, South Carolina, Tom and Bessie Bennett. And uh, he was one of the few that actually finished high school and he happened to have been a singer with a famous R&B group. And I was at a funeral, unfortunately, for my, my brother, my younger brother who died earlier. And as in those situations, you stand around with family members and you're sharing memories. And my sister mentioned that uh, our Uncle Wally 
had written a hit song. And I was intrigued by that. So I, I did some research and found that if what I'd heard was accurate, the song that he wrote would have been worth about a million and seventy-four thousand dollars to him in 1960s terms. Uh, but you know, while my uncle finished high school, he wasn't aware of intellectual property. He wasn't aware that he probably had a copyright in that song. And the result was there was there were no residuals for him, no licensing revenue, and no generational wealth for his family. And that started me on a path of looking at how was this happening? Was this uh, something that could be addressed and maybe have a positive benefit? So I did some research and found that it, it wasn't that unusual uh, misappropriation uh, of folks not getting the benefit of their innovation. And that led me to expanding some work I was already doing to create TIL and to come up with a solution which we call Happy Rights for All, which is designed to kind of address those situations. And then uh, we want to make that available to people who are in difficult situations as an opportunity for them to improve their situation. Yeah, and and this has some pretty profound and far-reaching implications, especially for underrepresented folks. Can you talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know that it's getting better since maybe your uncle's predicament and experiences in the 60s, but do you have any statistical data or information that we can share with our listeners that really um, emphasizes, you know, just how many people are really not getting their rights protected? And, you know, what do some would say it should all just be free and we really shouldn't bother ourselves with this. Why is it important? Well, and I think the the gist of it would be the phrase, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. The fact that we have uh, folks who are marginalized and underrepresented is, in essence, a boat anchor on the overall economy. Um, Our target is to work with 2.7 2.7 million marginalized and underrepresented entrepreneurs in the U.S. Uh, and also in Ethiopia and Vietnam for our first phase. Uh, and there are data from the United States Statistical Report and other sources that indicate that's a reasonable market set. But our, our listeners could look at sources like Poor Economics by a couple of professors from MIT, uh, Esther Duflo and, uh, and her partner. and you could project that up to 40% of the people around the world are underrepresented or marginalized for intellectual property. And what that means for us is uh, they're not aware of what they have. And one of the most interesting things is, for example, for things like copyrights, it is original creative expression in a tangible format. And at least in the United States, once you've met that standard, it actually comes into being at that point. So as you might imagine, people are creating copyrights often. The the judgment opportunity is determining when one of those is so important that you want to protect it. So the opportunity is to meet where they are, empower them with knowledge, for example, how they probably have copyrightable innovations that 
They don't care what color you happen to be, what ethnicity, how much money, where you live. It really is about your own native creativity. And it can give you a tool to, to doing something that you might enjoy, but also to making your life better by having a song or an art or even dance choreography that can be protected and then licensed and sold and created an asset for you. One, one thing I will mention that, that I think is, is significant is it's not really better since my uncle's situation. In fact, what I think has happened is it's changed and it's accelerated. For example, there is a controversy now, and you can, folks can check National Public Radio on this, about users of the platform Smash, which I think there are statistics which shows 25% of Black youth have an account on Smash, and how users of the platform TikTok are taking dance moves from some of the Dub Smash users and then performing them on TikTok, which is a much larger platform. And through that, their status of influences is being raised and they're making more money. And to close the loop on our discussion, the opportunity there is a lot of those users don't know that choreography is a form of copyrightable intellectual property if you meet that standard. So the, the uh, you know, the opportunity and the risk has changed, it's transitioned to being digital, but it still exists. And I think we can all benefit by making uh, everyone aware of their ability to create and then giving them that as a tool so they can use it to move forward and try to improve their situation. Yes, yeah, so if we've got maybe about a minute left here, but I'm I'm hoping that we can define something that is copyrightable. How do I know as a creative entrepreneur whether or not I should be getting a copyright? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll be direct. I think it depends on uh, how important is it to you. And it's something that you can actually do from a self-service basis. But my account, copyright covers about 16 different media. Uh, Anywhere from the obvious musical lyrics to if you take an image with your phone, uh, dance, mime, cartography for mapping. It is one of the most diverse tools. And it really is. Once you, it's original. So it's your original work. It, it only covers creative expression. And you put it in some kind of fixed media that someone can, can see uh, for a period of time, whether it's in writing, a digital image, then you arguably have a copyright. And the question becomes, do you want to register at copyright.gov, which costs about $35 to $55? And the Supreme Court has stated that if you really want to enforce your copyright vigorously, and I'm paraphrasing, you do want to register. And so but once you've done that, there are a lot of rights that go with that to give you flexibility as a, as a creative entrepreneur. I'm happy to share something with you and follow up because it might be of interest to the audience. Yeah, so we're going to take our midway break here. And in just a moment, Chris will be back and we will delve into copyright more deeply. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Clark Grant is in studio. In just a moment, we shall be right back.
This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And we just want to see how much we appreciate that you all are listening. Uh, today, our guest is Chris Bennett. And he has helped me out here. He's the founder of TIL, <laughs> Technology Innovation Law. Hi again, Chris. Hi, Carol. How are you? Excellent. So... Can you share a little bit about um, your technology, your platform, you know, what you're creating and how that will help all of, all of us out there who may need to copyright? Sure. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, we, um, what TIL is doing is raising awareness, providing access, providing affordability, and providing the availability of a potential return on investment to our, our, our clients. Uh, and what we do is open to anyone, but we really focus our energy and, and resources on reaching marginalized and underrepresented. And the reason we're taking this approach, uh, and we're doing it today as a service, a digital service, is because we did some research that was funded by the National Science Foundation uh, and administered to a program at George Washington University. And we interviewed about 30 uh, marginalized and underrepresented entrepreneurs. And we asked them about their awareness of intellectual property and, and what were their thoughts. What we found was about 95% of them had some kind of vague awareness, but they didn't really know accurately. And we also found that their perceptions in general were it's complex, costs a lot of money. Uh, even if you can get it, you might not be able to protect what you have because other people might be able to, uh, to overpower you. And the benefits were kind of not really sure. So we took that feedback into building our IP rights for all solution. Uh, and that's why we start with awareness. So we're actually, um, we have team members out in the community raising awareness amongst the, helping to raise awareness amongst the marginalized and underrepresented. And we're working through other organizations to make folks more aware of what they can do themselves, what they have the power to do themselves. Uh, and we also focused on access. So we actually will help someone if they just want to do it themselves. And I have a three generation D kids that are grown adults now, they, they say they much prefer to try it themselves and then figure out if they want to pay someone. So we, we provide information to help make that decision. We'll just do it yourself. We can help a little bit as a consultant, or we can do the work for them as both a law firm and also using our technology. The third piece of affordability, roughly compared to the averages, our, we tried to set our, our costs, our rates at 40 to 60% below the averages. And we do have uh, pro bono programs. And, and for COVID-19, we actually launched a COVID-19 pay what you can program. So we wanted to make sure that there wasn't a barrier to affordability. And the last piece, which I think is the really uh, part that keeps me very excited, is the return on investment. We literally work with uh, an entrepreneur from their idea through to trying to match them with resources and relationships that will help them achieve their aspiration. And that was one of the things the marginalized and underrepresented mentioned to us. We said the current 
structure is fragmented. They wanted someone to take the journey with them. So we actually take the journey with the client and try to help them achieve a, a result that matters to them. So that's the approach we're taking. And a couple of quick examples would be uh, we have one client that we worked with that wanted to enter a new market. They needed a certain license. Uh, we work with them uh, in negotiations to help them achieve that. And that license was worth, uh, I think, about $750,000 in the marketplace. And then we have another client who's an amazing client, uh, retired teacher, have a unique teaching methodology. They didn't want to make money. They wanted to help make the world a better place. So we matched them with some non-governmental organizations, and they're trying to package their teaching method, which focuses on preschoolers, to help refugee kids in Greece and in Turkey, because those parents are concerned about how do they help their preschoolers uh, move forward in their development in an environment like that. Can you talk a little bit about your technology? Do you have all the software written? You know, what stage are you at? And how will this technology help? Because I have to say, I've, <laughs> I've attempted some technologies that actually really make things harder. <laughs> well, that's a great point, Kellen. And that's also a great segue. In response to both that question and the prior one, um, we're doing IP rights law as a service today. So we actually use online systems and we have folks working with email. And that's okay, but it's not, I think the, the investment analyst word is it's not scalable. So we have a software developer working with us and um, we're taking our experience from doing it as a service and we're going to turn that into software code that people will be able to access from a mobile device as an app, but also they'll be able to go to it on the web. And that software will do what I just described to you in the audience. It'll address awareness, access, affordability, and availability. And uh, the, the vision is we'll use some of those technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning and also blockchain to let someone in one experience go through the entire cycle of creating the intellectual property, registering it, and then starting a process that helps them to reach out to the right people to help them achieve their ultimate goal. And so that's it's one of the things we're doing now is preparing for a crowdfunding program to raise the funds to be able to write that software code. And we're, we're excited. We have a developer that has capabilities and they're willing to collaborate with us to take the idea and the service that we're doing and turn it into a product. Can you talk about your funding? That's always a, a favorite topic on Heartstock <laughs> because we all are, we all are as entrepreneurs, uh, not too many of us are independently wealthy. How are you funding your endeavors? That's a great question. And, and I know from uh, your background is the purse for the people that you have a lot of empathy for, for entrepreneurs, I believe. Um, so far, it's bootstrap. I've put in as much of my own money as I can to this point. Uh, I happen to have a friends and family investor that put in some of their money. And uh, we also earned a grant from Eureka WeWork. And we also received a small government grant. 
So we're the classic underdog. Uh, and, and I've kind of had that mantle throughout my entire life. So I'm, uh, I'm comfortable with it. And our strategy is do the crowdfunding, finish the product. And then we're, we're a social impact entity. So we will continue to try to uh, raise the necessary funds until the model is fully funded. So we can not only serve our current clients and those in the U.S. and Ethiopia and uh, Vietnam, but actually expand and make what we're doing available worldwide because our research has shown that some of the same issues of, of being marginalized and underrepresented are not just in the U.S., but they're global. And the cool part is that we have research and data that show that by solving this problem of empowering people to use innovation, uh, it not only helps them, but it is a rising tide lifts all boats. For example, in the United States, the projection is if we can address a lot of these structural issues, we can grow GDP by 4.4% a year. And that was from uh, Andre Iancu, who was the former director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, and more pointedly, J.P. Morgan Chase projects we can actually improve the economy by tr- roughly a trillion dollars a year by just overcoming some of these structural issues that are legacy issues for countries like the United States and empowering marginalized and underrepresented people to move forward using their, their ability to innovate. What was that that saying that your mom had about you? Your uh, help me out. Your, oh God! <laughs> your, your solution looking some something. Yeah, I can tell you have an excellent memory, and you've done a lot of your homework. Uh, my mom, just when I was five years old, she described me as a solution looking for a problem. And uh, my my family, they're probably excellent barometers for some of my behavior. My sister calls me a professional student. And uh, I definitely, throughout my life, have looked for situations where I thought things could be better and it could make a difference. And I love to address them. Probably my superpower might be that I can look at things like technology and innovation and law and bring together disparate things and try to come up with a unique solution. So, yeah, mom was right. She was totally right. <laughs> yes, and it, it seems that um, very early on, it, it was written in your stars. So we've got only about a minute left here, and I was hoping that we could uh, direct our listeners to means and methods of contacting you. Uh, yes, I appreciate the transition. Um, I can be reached uh, through email, uh, and I've provide that to, uh, to Carol and have to share that. And we also have a full slate of social media channels um, through which we can reach. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. We have our new website, which is up, GIL Group, as well as our legacy website for law practice. And we would love to connect with the audience and to work with them and, and provide guidance on how they can pursue their aspirations uh, using intellectual property. Mm. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for chatting with us here on Heartstock, Chris. Really appreciate it. Carol, thank you so much. It has been truly an honor and a privilege, and I want to send my best to your audience. 
and a special shout out to uh, first responders and line workers and healthcare workers. And an extra special acknowledgement to all the women uh, in the world today. It is Women's History Month. And thanks for what you do. This is Heartstock, and I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks again for listening. And as usual, see you next week. Speaking from California, I hope. <laughs> all, the, all four tires stay on the road. See you next week. Bye-bye. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. As I went walking, I saw a sign.